please open up with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Last Sunday, uh, Greg was preaching and he showed us that Jesus asked us to pray for God to send out laborers for the harvest, for the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And then Jesus commissions the 12 apostles and disciples to begin to meet that prayer request, to really go out and do the very thing that Jesus was requesting, and that they would go out to those in Israel who were like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, who needed sound teaching, and in this case, signs and wonders and miracles in order to aid them. And the Lord is also training them and us for future missions, including the Great Commission that comes that we're, that we're within now, for going out not just to Israel, but to all the nations of the earth in order to preach the truth of the kingdom of God. So I'm going to read the text for us, and then I'll pray. We'll start in verse 16. This is Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes." A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And also verses 34 to 37. Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would show us both what Jesus is saying more immediately to his disciples, but also the obvious applications and implications for our lives today on this side of the cross and resurrection and ascension. God, I pray that you would give us clarity, that you would give us humility mixed with boldness. That is such a difficult balance to get right in my life and in most of our lives, that, that delicate balance of being profoundly courageous and also gracious and humble in the way that we communicate and when we communicate to others. So God, I pray that you would help us to be able to do that for your glory and for your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I will go ahead and mention the outline. It's a, a little bit wordy. If you're trying to write this down, I don't know that it will be very easy to jot it down quickly. I did put it in the group me. For those who are in our church group me, the, the, the outline should be present there. I've titled the sermon, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
And really there's four points because my introduction sort of counts as an opening point, kind of an overview point. But the introduction is this, sheep, wolves, serpents, and doves. From verse 16, sheep, wolves, serpents, and doves, verse 16. Then point one, religious and political opposition and a promise. Religious and political opposition and a promise. Verses 17 to 20. Point two, familial opposition. Familial opposition and a promise. Verses 21 to 23 and verses 34 to 37. And finally, point number three, Christ-likeness in and through opposition. Christ-likeness in and through opposition. That's verses 24 and 25. So let's start with the introduction. Sheep, wolves, serpents, and doves. And let's, look, let's reread verse 16. Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, there is pretty strong consensus here that Jesus, in the part Greg covered last Sunday, which is covering verses 5 to 15, which is the beginning of what Jesus says to the disciples at this point, verses 5 to 15 appears to be covering a much shorter mission that those 12 apostles have, which is for the cities in the Galilee region, not Samaria, which is south of Galilee, not the Gentiles that are north and around Galilee. He says, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, just the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So it's a very limited thing to the cities of Galilee. Most commentators agree, I think this is correct, that at verse 16, Jesus lifts his gaze beyond that short mission and looks to a longer period of mission that will go beyond that limited one, following this? So beyond the limited one to Israel, Jesus is is, is lifting it to a larger area because he mentions Gentiles as who they will witness to in the following verses. So you see, he starts with a localized Israel mission that might have lasted a month. We don't know how long. And then he's lifting to a further mission, which we'll argue at least goes until 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. And really, it goes beyond even that. And it applies to us today. So what is this metaphor, sheep, wolves, serpents, and doves? Let me just say this, as you read through today's passage, especially verses 16 to 25, you will see several times Jesus go from warning to encouraging promise to intense warning to encouraging promise. He goes back and forth like that. So why would Jesus teach that way? Why would he say, trouble is coming if you follow me. There is going to be trouble. And then he says, but don't be afraid, promises and encouragement. Why would he keep doing that? Because let's think about it. If following Jesus is truly costly in this life, which it is, you ever lost something because you follow Jesus? You ever missed out on something because of your commitment to Jesus? Have you ever felt neglect or hostility from others because of your love for the Lord Jesus? I'm not talking about being a jerk to someone. I'm talking about a true, humble devotion to Christ that leads to negative consequences in your life that you don't want and you wish wouldn't happen and you pray against. But have you ever lost something because you love Jesus? Here's what Jesus is telling us. Jesus loves us enough to tell us realistically what's coming if we commit to follow him. It's not always going to be rainbows and butterflies. It's not always going to be bright, sunny days. There are going to be some challenging and difficult circumstances that come. And the more committed we are to Jesus, in some ways, the more challenging the days will come in some ways. And here's why Jesus loves us enough to tell us that. If he didn't tell us that, would we not be thrown off guard when things don't go the way we wish? I I do wonder how many people have become a Christian and not known that part of the Christian life is tribulation. And you become a Christian, you think, it's going to be easy sailing. God is my Father. 
Jesus is my Savior. I know the Lord. He's forgiven my sins. This is going to be easy sailing from now on. And then suddenly storms come into our life. And we're thinking, what? What is happening? I thought I was committed to the Lord who's sovereign over all, and God is allowing these challenging circumstances and persecution and opposition to enter my life. Where is God? See, Jesus loves us enough to what? To prepare us for the challenging times. This is what he said in John's gospel. Don't turn here. The night before he died, he said this, the helper is coming whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth. He will bear witness about me and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He's been warning them that the world will hate them. And then he says this, I have said all these things to you, including the world will hate you. Why did Jesus tell them this? To keep you from falling away. You hear that? I'm warning you how the hardships will come so that you're prepared for them, and when they come, you remember the promises. He gives us several promises in today's text to reassure us and to give us ballast and security when those difficult times come in the Christian life. So Jesus doesn't sugarcoat anything. I mean, you almost have to smile when you think about this. Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. The reason I say you almost smile is because I read a commentator this week, and he said, there's many depictions of Jesus as a good shepherd. We've all seen the images, Jesus with the lamb on his shoulders, Jesus leading the lambs or something like that. You know, you might have seen that growing up. Have you ever seen the painting of Jesus sending the sheep into the, into the wolf den? Have you ever seen that one? Okay, wolves, we're going to go out to the wolves. Sheep, let's go out to the wolves. Okay, Jesus leading a bunch of sheep. Into, have you ever seen that painting? I've, I've never seen that painting before. Okay, but it would be an accurate depiction of this verse. It's why it's, it's, it's shocking. Jesus says, you, my sheep, get ready. I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of a hostile world that is going to persecute, hate you because of me, and you need to be prepared for that. Be sent out like sheep in the midst of wolves. We are to be shrewd as serpents, wise as serpents, and innocent as doves. One commentator said, wise as serpents. This is interesting. How about this? The Greek word here for wise or shrewd as serpents, it's the same Greek word that they translated from Genesis 3.1 into Greek, the serpent was more shrewd than all the wild animals. The word used for Satan in Genesis 3.1, shrewd, the shrewd snake. And Jesus says, be shrewd as a serpent. Same words. But then he says, be innocent as doves. This is a, this is a holy shrewdness, unlike the serpent in Genesis 3. It's a godly, holy, innocent, blameless shrewdness. What does Jesus mean? One commentator says, the basic point is one of realism. We are not to risk our lives unnecessarily, but to continue in our mission. Another writes, Jesus calls His followers to bravery, but not to foolishness. Believers must not seek out persecution. Think about the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 9, he's radically converted. Remember what happens? Well, several things happen. He's in Damascus, remember, early on. He's preaching Jesus. What happens? When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill Paul. But their plot became known to him. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. You remember that verse. Is Paul being shrewd as a serpent in that moment? Yes. Paul says, okay, I know that they're seeking to kill me. I'm not going to walk through the city gate. I'm going to be shrewd. I'm going to get in a basket. I'm going to have people lower me down, and I'm going to escape with my life this time. Later in the same chapter, he goes to Jerusalem. He went in and out among Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. It says he spoke and disputed with some Hellenists. 
but they were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, the port city, and sent him off by boat to Tarsus, right? So this time Paul's, okay, I'm about to be killed in Jerusalem. Let me go back to my home city of Tarsus for a period of, of time. But later in Acts, this happens. Agabus the prophet says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, if you go there, they're going to bind you and hand you over. You might die. And Paul this time says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And the chapter before that, he said, I don't count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was choosing his battles wisely. Sometimes if his life was at risk, he flees the city. Sometimes when his life is at risk, he goes to the city. And you just have to use wisdom to know when do I do one, when do I do the other. But we are also to be innocent as doves, a shrewd innocence. I once misused, I once heard a pastor misuse this text, uh, maybe last year, uh, a well-known pastor was quoting this very verse, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Uh, and it was his way of trying to bring an immoral practice into his church. And he used this text. He said, don't always tell people exactly where you're going. They may kind of get afraid of where you're going. Instead, do what Jesus said. Be wise as a serpent. And so just lead them to what they can handle with this issue and get as far as you can and then introduce more and more. And as you go on, you'll be slowly bringing people in. And they may not even realize what's happening until it's, I want to say, too late. Uh, but, but that's true. That's uh, a pastor in the Atlanta area who was using that verse to argue in that direction last year. Okay, let's move to point number one. Religious and political opposition and a promise. Religious and political opposition and a promise. Verse 17. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So there's the double warning. Both religious and political opposition is coming our way. And when you look at the rest of the New Testament, the book of Acts, Paul's letters, do we see this happen over and over again? Yes. You can see here, the focus of Jesus here is when Christians and the synagogues were still pretty closely connected. So this is probably before AD 70. He's probably looking at the time period from about 30 AD to 70 AD as his primary focus when Christians in the synagogue and the persecution is largely taking place before AD 70, although uh, people could debate it could go beyond that as well. Certainly, either way, this applies beyond that date. Uh, even if we're not going to be involved maybe in a synagogue, perhaps, but still, there's going to be religious and political persecution for Christians uh, to this day, no matter matter when and no matter where we live. What is it that makes the message of Jesus so hated by those who do not embrace it? I know we know this, that we talk about this, but even this week, I was trying to sort of start over at the basics, just thinking this from the ground up. Why? Like, sincerely, like, no Sunday school answer for a second. It's true that True Christian faith, even lived out by godly, humble Christian people, is genuinely despised by many people in the world. Why, why is that? Just throw out all the Sunday school answers for a second and start from just building it up from ground zero, from, from kind of building blocks, thinking biblically, what is it that's causing that? So I was just praying about this sincerely, just wanted to rethink it from the start. Like, what is it 
that makes Christianity offensive and, and despised. And I was flipping around, I thought of a story. And just turn with me real quick to John chapter 7. I thought about this text with Jesus and his brothers who did not believe in him yet, including James and Jude. And there's this one simple statement that I think says a whole lot. Verse 5, uh, this is John 7, verse 5. I mean, if you look at verse 1, let me start in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews, this is the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, were seeking to kill him. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And here it is, the world cannot hate you, his unbelieving brothers. The world can't hate you, but it hates me. And here's the answer, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Let's just think about that for a second. It was the holiness of Jesus and his moral standard that made him a target for other people to hate. So just, just think for a second. Jesus says things like the all-famous, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to me. No one can come to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. That verse is one of the most hated verses in the Bible. I think it's gloriously true. Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to know God, God has made a way. If you think of the bridge metaphor, if you're familiar with the bridge metaphor, you've got us on one side of a cliff and you've got God and his holiness on the other side of the cliff. There is no way for sinful humanity to get across the cliff, the chasm, the gap between us and God. How are we ever gonna get to know the true God? We are so far from worthy and adequate. And yet God has provided a bridge it's the cross, a bridge that will support the heaviest of sinners, the sinner with the most sin, the, with the most baggage, the most evil in their past. God can save any and every sinner, including the apostle Paul when he was murdering Christians for a living. Th this cross is the way to know God. Now, that's gloriously true. I mean, it's moving. It's stirring to us that we have a way to know God. That exact same truth is despised and hated by the world. Why? Because you know what else is implied in the truth that the bridge is the cross and that's the only bridge? The answer is that means every other religion at its core cannot get you across the chasm to, the, to, know, to know the true God. Islam cannot get you to that, get across that chasm. Allah has the five pillars of Islam. And if you work very hard to keep those five pillars, fast of Ramadan, visiting Mecca, giving to the poor, confessing no God but Allah, Muhammad is prophet, on and on and on. If you do these things consistently, Allah may show you mercy and he may accept you into heaven, a very different God, a very different heaven, a very different way of salvation. But Jesus would say that's not gonna get you to the true God. Hinduism, Buddhism, secular humanism, atheism, none of these things create paths that actually get you to the one true God. Jesus is saying, I'm here I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way to know the true God. I am the only way. Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we may be saved except the name of Jesus. So what's gloriously true, we can know God through Christ, is unbearably offensive. Think about what the implication is. Every other worldview that is not based on the biblical crucified and risen Jesus and salvation by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, is rotten to its core and leads only to condemnation and eternal separation from the goodness of God under his wrath forever. That is unimaginably offensive. 
Because you're saying to someone, what you are building your life on, if it's not Jesus, is a faulty foundation that will not bear up on the final day. That is radically offensive and gloriously true simultaneously. So Jesus says, the world hates me because I testify to it that its works are evil. All the immoral practices, all the things that are wrong, including self-righteous sin, Jesus condemns, and therefore, the world hates that, and we in our natural state hate that because we love the darkness rather than the light until Christ regenerates our heart. So let's go back to Matthew 10. We're going to see religious opposition, verse 17, and political opposition, verse 18. But here's the promise, verse 19. Matthew 10, 19. Here's the promise. When they deliver you over to your standing trial, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, this is a wonderful promise. There's a million examples, but I'll just pick one. Stephen. Stephen was one of the early deacons, essentially, of the early church, dealing with Hellenistic and, uh, and Hebrew-speaking widows, and he's sorting out that and keeping unity in the church. He was picked as one of the seven men to be the early deacons and servants of the church, and all of a sudden, he's having to go toe-to-toe in debate with, with uh, Jewish unbelievers, and every time he's in debate with them, he's so full of God's Spirit that his wisdom overpowers them, and they can't answer him, and they're becoming more jealous and angry, and just, they don't know what to do to overpower him in argument. They can't win. So finally, they drag him before the Jewish Sanhedrin, and they put him there, and what happens? Stephen, I don't think Stephen had any kind of major way of planning for what was about to happen. He's suddenly forced into a position, and we don't even know if he was doing a lot of preaching or anything like this, but suddenly, they give him the mic, right? They, they open it up, and they say, you must defend yourself. And we get the longest speech in the book of Acts, and it's glorious. Stephen right here could have been anxious, but what, what are we told? His face was like the face of what? An angel. He was overwhelmed by God's peace and God's nearness, and he stands up and says, brothers, listen to me, and he begins to preach. And what does he say? He says, it's a masterful sermon. We won't go through the whole thing right now. It's a masterful sermon where Stephen says what? Stephen says, listen, God visited Moses in the wilderness. He was with the people near Sinai. God can dwell with his people even if there is no temple built, right? God was with Joseph down in Egypt, even though he wasn't near a temple And he goes on and on and on. What is he making the point? We don't need a building to know God. We need God's presence by His Spirit. And in the New Covenant era, He can meet with us individually, just like He did back with Moses and Joseph. And on, Stephen weaves a masterful sermon using the Old Testament to point to Jesus. And at the end, they they gnash their teeth, close their ears, and stone Him to death as Saul himself looks on. Did the Spirit give him the words to say in that moment so that he could speak powerfully and truthfully and confront the errors of their ways, even though he paid a high price for it? Yes. And the Lord will be faithful to us in our time of need. For us, it maybe look a lot more mild, okay? Maybe we're on the phone with a relative, and all of a sudden, spiritual things come up. And you know your relative has different views. And maybe your relative asks you a question or you feel like you should say something and you're like, I haven't prepared anything. I don't have any idea. I don't have any notes. I don't have any bullet points. I've got nothing. What do you do? Lord, help. You do those three-second prayers. Lord, help. Uh, I kid you not. I was, I was asked a question in class the other day in Bible class at school and uh, it was a tough question. I literally had about a two-second pause to answer. I literally in my mind said, 
Lord, help me. <laughs> and then I tried to answer the question as best I could because it's hard. You don't know what to say sometimes as you ought. And so in those moments when you're on the phone, you say, Lord, help me put this into words. And the Lord is gracious to help us in those moments to help us put things into words. This verse is never to be an excuse for inadequate preparation for leading a small group or teaching or preaching or whatever. It's not an excuse. This is not, this is not like, Lord, if you have a word today, I'm not going to prep at all, but when I get up in the pulpit, Lord, just give me a word. That's not how this is supposed to work. That is, it's not an excuse for laziness. This is for desperate moments where there's no time to prepare and you have to defend what you believe. Say, Lord, help, and then speak boldly and trust the results to the Lord. I just have to mention one more example. I have a lot more written down, but I'll mention one more. It says you'll appear before governors. Remember Paul, Felix, and Festus in Acts, and Jesus before Pilate, all governors of Judea. Listen to this one. This one always is amazing to me. So Paul is being held in prison. Acts 24, listen to this. After some days, Felix, this is the governor. This is the new Pontius Pilate. He's taken Pilate's job years later. Came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul from the prison, right? He sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul said to the governor, the most powerful man locally in the region who could have him killed, released, whatever. Paul says this, and as Paul reasoned with the governor about what? Righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Wow, this guy, by the way, is sexually immoral. Uh, he's got all kinds of sin in his past. Very unrighteous man. Calls the prisoner up to have a chat. What is Paul talking to him about? Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And I love the response. Felix was alarmed. <laughs> He's not used to having conversations with prisoners who are putting him in the hot seat. <laughs> when you stand before the Lord, uh, Mr. Governor Felix, when you stand before the Lord one day at final judgment, what are you going to say about the sexual immorality in your past? What are you going to say about this woman that you're with right now uh, under immoral circumstances? What are you going to say about the lying and cheating and stealing? You know, the Lord is going to hold everyone to account. Felix goes, what is going on here? Okay, Paul, let's uh, put you back in the jail for a little while. So it says here, Felix was alarmed and said, uh, go away for the present. <laughs> like, please stop talking. Uh, and uh, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. He's like, get me out of here, okay? So Paul is bold even speaking to governors uh, as in that situation there. And the Lord was faithful to give words to speak. Okay, verse 21, this is starting uh, point number two. Familial opposition and a promise. Familial opposition and a promise, verse 21. Brother will deliver over brother to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Verse 34 to 37, I won't reread right now, but you have the same kind of thing, a sword in the home between all kinds of relatives, all dividing over the Lord Jesus. Well, let me just say uh, briefly here this. Verse 22, don't miss this. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. First of all, does Jesus have a pretty high view of himself to say it like that? What's the Old Testament? Jesus, uh, what does the Lord say in the Old Testament? I will show my name, right, in the Exodus. They will know my name is Yahweh. In Ezekiel, they will know that I am. They will know my name. They'll know the Lord. Here, Jesus says it's for my name's sake, putting himself in the same place as God. And what does, what, what's the point here? First Peter says, if you're persecuted or you face some kind of trouble, it better not be because you've broken some law. Don't let it be because you're a murderer or you're a thief. Don't suffer for those reasons. But no, if you suffer under the name Christian, the spirit of glory 
and of God rests upon you, and you should glory in that persecution. But don't suffer as a meddler or a thief or something along those lines. No, we are to be, we are to, to be honored and, and ultimately hated in the name of the Lord Jesus. This means it's not because we are nitpicking other people. It's not because we're mean-spirited to other people. It's not because we're looking down on other people. It's not because we think we're superior to other people. It's not because we think that we have more inherent righteousness than other people. It's because we're connected to the Lord Jesus. It's in His name that we are facing this kind of persecution. Now, let me, let me make a point of application about family. I know this is obvious, but it's so important. Number one, we do never, we never, ever, ever deliberately pursue family disunity. We work against it as much as we possibly can. We, we don't want families to be broken apart. We don't want there to be hatred amongst family members because you've become a Christian. We don't, we don't wish that. We don't want that. And we, listen, if your parents are not Christians, if, you're, if your mom or, fa- mom or dad are not Christians, I, I, I don't know what that's like. I can't imagine what that's like. But I know that's true for a number of you. Listen, we honor our father and mother no matter what they believe, no matter what they've done to us, no matter how difficult our upbringing may have been, no matter how broken and sinful our past may be. We honor our parents no matter what, but we may have profound disagreements about God, Christ, and the gospel with them. We never give up on loving them. We try to find good opportunities where we can humbly and graciously bring up things about Christ and church and God's people and how God's changed your life and your testimony and the gospel. Absolutely seek those opportunities. Even there, is there wisdom involved? If every single time you talk to your parents, you're, you're just mentioning over and over and over how they need to repent, that may not be the best mode of approach. But if you never bring it up, it's probably cowardice, right? So we got to find the wisdom, wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. When do I bring it up? When do I not bring it up? Do I bring it up directly and in a confrontational way? Do I bring it up in more of an indirect way? Do I talk about my own life or do I talk about their life? What's my tone like? What's my word choice like? I would recommend especially if you're, if you're younger, get counsel from godly men and women you know around you who've been around longer than you and a Christian longer than you and ask for counsel. Say, I'm, I'm, I want to have this conversation with my father about Christ. If I just start disagreeing with him and confronting him, that may not be the wisest way to do this. How should I think about bringing up Christ with my unbelieving atheist father? And, and we, we need the collective wisdom of people in this room to think through how to work through these things. But listen, I want you to know this as well. No matter how well we love our family members, for some, it is inevitable that they will not like what we do, even if done rightly. They will reject and hate what we do in certain instances. I mean, I was reading stories this week. These are familiar with Muslim families, numerous accounts where uh, a daughter converts and then the brothers seek to try to kill the daughter because of her conversion from Islam to Christianity. These are kinds of things that do happen in the world. Not saying that's true of every Muslim family. I'm just saying that is a thing that happens. So in some cases, no matter what, when you are a professing Christian, you're baptized, people see that publicly, no matter how gracious, some simply will not tolerate it. But again, their anger toward us should not be due to us being self-righteous or a jerk to them. It should be due to Jesus and Jesus only if they are going to reject what we have to say. It should be for the name of Jesus that that would come about. Here's another point there. Whatever we do, we must value Jesus more than our own family, friends, relatives, children, our career, our job. There cannot be anything in our life that takes priority over our relationship with Jesus. Nothing. 
Some people have literally lost relationships with their closest family members because of their commitment to Jesus. This means Jesus has to be that real, that important, that valuable, that wonderful in your life that you are willing to suffer the loss of everything if necessary to have Jesus. I mean, look, look again at verse 37, amazing verse. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus has to take priority over our own family members. But just, this is a direct question. You can only answer this for your own self, but ser- sincerely. Do you love and value Jesus the way he's describing in that text? I mean, that's not an, something you just say glibly, like, oh yeah, I love him more than anything else. Oh, yeah, we love Jesus. No, sincerely, if push comes to shove, is Jesus a priority over every other relationship in your life? The one non-negotiable is I will keep Jesus no matter what I have to lose in the process. And hopefully we don't lose any of those relationships. But if the price comes to be paid, will we hold on to Jesus no matter what? Here's the promise. This is brief. Look at verse, in the verse, middle of 22. Here's the promise. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Here's the promise. If we hold on to Jesus, no matter what the cost, we will be saved. For all of eternity, we will be dwelling in the immediate presence of the triune God. We will see Christ face to face. We will have all our sins forgiven, and we will live in a new creation, new earth, with new bodies, and all God saved to redeem people for all of time and all of eternity in the future That is the reward of a few short decades of difficulty here. You think of Moses, Hebrews 11. He did not, he he, he forsook the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to his reward. He counted the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he thought the fleeting pleasures of sin was not worth it. 80 years of sin is not worth it. No matter what pleasure is given, it's not worth it if we lose Jesus. Well, because of the time, I'm not going to end the sermon yet, but I have (laughs) verse 23, I'll just tell you. Don Carson thinks verse 23 is one of the hardest verses to interpret in the entire New Testament, and so do other commentators. And I don't have time to go through the seven possibilities of what this verse could be referring to. What does it mean, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes? Well, I'll just tick through the options, and I'm not even sure what the answer is, okay? I'll give you five options as a conversation for another day. Number one. It could be referring to Jesus' reunion with the disciples at the end of this mission, like in a month. I doubt that's true because none of these persecutions happen in that mission. Number two, it could refer to the resurrection, but even by then they hadn't faced much persecution. Number three, it could refer to Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. That's what John Calvin thought, but even then they haven't experienced much persecution. I doubt those work. Number four, it could be referring to Jesus coming in a sense in judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD. I think there's a pretty good argument you could make for that in this particular text. And number five, Jesus expected a lengthy period of time before the end and is saying that the mission to Israel is ongoing and it will not ultimately conclude until the second coming at the end of the age. I think it's either number four or five, but I'm not totally sure how to answer that question. And for the sake of time, we won't get into an hour long. I mean, we could go 45 minutes right now on that. We won't, I will, I, we, we will not do that. Okay, point number three, the last point of the sermon, <clears throat> Christ-likeness in and through opposition, verses 24 and 25. And this, I hope, is a comfort, even if it seems like a strange comfort. And we will end on this note. 
Christ-likeness in and through opposition. Look at verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, essentially Satan, how much more those of his house, or how much more will they malign those of his household? See, this is the part where the gospel just comes in so strongly, doesn't it? I mean, those verses are astonishing. Jesus is not asking us to do anything He Himself did not already do for us. That's amazing. Think about it. Does Jesus evangelize the lost sheep of Israel? Yes, that's what He's telling them to do. Does Jesus face hostility along the way? Yes. Does Jesus stand before, does he get in trouble with synagogues like in Nazareth? They almost throw him over a cliff. Yes. Does Jesus get in trouble with the governor? Pontius Pilate. Does he get scourged, the flogging? Does he get whipped with the cat of nine tails basically until he's about to just die of blood loss? Yes. Does he get nailed to a Roman cross? Yes. Does he get abandoned by God Almighty and all of our sin placed on him and he is forsaken under God's wrath that we deserve? Yes. Does he bury our sin in the grave? Does he come out triumphant? Does he show himself to many witnesses for 40 days? Does he ascend back into heaven? Is he coming again to judge the world? Yes. Jesus is not asking you, Christian, to undergo any difficulty or any persecution that he himself did not undergo. You say, but he doesn't know what it's like to have family members who don't believe. We just read about that. James and Jude, who later wrote books in the New Testament, did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. We're told in Mark 5 and 6, they thought he was out of his mind. Our older brother has lost it. He thinks he's the Christ. He's not. We've been sharing a room with him for the last 30 years, 27 years. We, we, this, he's not the Messiah. He, he's, got, he's on this ego trip. They thought he was out of his mind. Does Jesus know what it's like to lose family members over this kind of thing? Yes, he does. Jesus is not asking you to do anything he hasn't already done for you. And that's why he says here, it's, it almost makes you want to tear up. Verse 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. One commentator said, what understatement? Is it enough to be like Jesus? Is that sufficient for you to be like Jesus? It is enough for the the servant to be like his master, the disciple like his teacher. It should be enough for us to be like the Lord Jesus. I'm going to close now with this. I know I'm going a little long here, but let me close with with this story. On October 16th, 1555, in Oxford, Protestant Christians Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were martyred under Bloody Mary on the Oxford campus. To this day, there's a cross carved out in the road. You can Google it and see. Some of you, I think, have stood on that. Papa Fred, have you stood in that very place? Papa Fred has stood on that very place where this, where this martyrdom took place. I'm going to read to you from church history a little sample here of what happened to them because we see both the faithfulness of God and the agonizing death that these two men faced. Listen to these words. When Edward VI was removed from the throne and Bloody Mary succeeded, Bishop Ridley was immediately marked as an object of of slaughter. He was first sent to the tower, that's for prison, and afterward at Oxford was consigned to the common prison with Mr. Latimer. Dr. Ridley, the night before execution, had himself shaved and called his supper a marriage feast. He remarked, so the, the woman who runs this area, the, who was giving him her food, was named Mrs. Irish. 
He remarked upon seeing Mrs. Irish, the keeper's wife. She was weeping because he's going to die the next day. She's bringing the meal. He said this, though my breakfast will be somewhat sharp, my supper will be more pleasant and sweet. I'm going to die in the morning. In the evening, I'll be dining with the Lord Jesus. The place of death was on the north side of the town. Dr. Ridley was dressed in a black gown, furred, and Mr. Latimer had a long shroud on hanging down to his feet. Dr. Ridley uh, being unclothed to his shirt, the smith placed an iron chain around their waists, and Dr. Uh, Ridley bid him fasten it securely. His brother, ha- his brother, having tied a bag of gunpowder around his neck to help them die quicker, gave some also to Mr. Latimer. Some wood was lit on fire and now laid at Dr. Ridley's feet, which caused Mr. Latimer to say, Be of good cheer, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England that I trust will never be put out. They Partly they were believing in justification by faith alone in contradiction to the medieval Catholic Church, and they also rejected transubstantiation. They believed that at the Lord's Supper, the elements don't actually become the body and blood of Jesus, which is what the Catholic Church teaches. So they were deemed heretics, and they were being killed for those reasons. So listen to this. This is the part, more so than that quote, this next part is hard to even think about. So as the fire took hold, Latimer was stifled by the smoke and died without pain. But the same was not true for Dr. Ridley. The wood was piled up above his head, but he writhed in agony and repeatedly cried out, Lord, have mercy upon me. I cannot burn. Those are the words that he cried out several times, and they tried to get the fire closer, but because of the wind and how it was angled and how the wood, the, some of the wood was not uh, as ready for burning, he sat there in agony for an extended period of time saying repeatedly, Lord, have mercy. I cannot burn. And the Lord sustained him to the end, and he died. They both died, and they were buried. And we see here both the price to be paid for those who follow Christ. Are we willing to pay that price? And also the faithfulness of the Lord to sustain them, and in that moment to give those words, be of good cheer, play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, when we try to visualize this moment of these two martyrs, Bishop Ridley and Mr. Latimer, because of their faith in the true gospel, faced this horrible persecution, and they died courageously, boldly, honoring your name, as they are literally being burned alive at the stake. And as we think of Dr. Ridley's agonizing moments of horrifying torment before his death, Lord, uh, God, we, we see the price that a true believer is willing to pay to be faithful and true to the Lord no matter what. And Lord, even if that fate does not stand before those of us in this room, although we never know what may happen to anyone, even if that's not the price that we will be asked to pay, Lord, there are much lesser costs that we will have to pay in this life. We, we know increasingly so in this culture. There are just prices that we will have to pay, sacrifices we will have to make that will be painful. Help us to know whoever loves father or mother more than Jesus is not worthy of Jesus. Whoever loves son or daughter more than Jesus is not worthy of Jesus. But you've called us to take up our cross daily and to follow you. Because if we seek to preserve our life in this world, we'll lose it. But if we seek 
to gain our life in eternity, we will have to sacrifice here in this life. So God, give us the boldness and the humility, the wisdom and the innocence as we are sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves as we boldly and humbly speak the truth of you to those who desperately need to hear it. And I pray that in the middle of it all, everyone could see clearly that Jesus really is at the center of our life and at the top of what we value and love in this world. I pray that you would make that to be true of us, Lord. We can only do that by your grace and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.